0: hi welcome to ask a jew where a secular sinful israeli speaks to her holy religious friend i'm yael here with chayalea um, bringing you all the tunnel news you need from gaza <laughs> to crown heights <laughs> oh god
1: we're starting off at the top with that great
0: yeah. Um, we'll we first have a very. Your,
1: our special guest.
0: Well, well, I'm sure our special guest has a lot of strong feelings about tunnels. You know, those libertarians and their tunnels. <laughs> goes, goes back in history. But hi, Nick yeah. Gillespie.
2: Hi, guys. It's good to be talking to you.
0: So Nick is, aside from, you know, I, I'd like to think our podcast put you on the map about a year ago.
2: <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah.
0: But aside from being yeah. a one of Ask a Jew's most, uh, most sought-after guests... Also That's editor true. at Large Reason Magazine, co-host of the Reason Roundtable, which is on my uh, must-listen list, and uh, host of the Reason interview with Nick Gillespie.
1: Yes. I tried to call really this Ask
0: with Yael Bartour, but I got uh, overruled.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can see why. You
0: know. <laughs>
3: of course.
2: Have you guys seen a book? Uh, a- boom in listenership since uh, yeah, Israel w- is back in the news.
0: The mm-hmm.
1: war has been very yes. good to us. Yeah. yeah, We're okay. profiting. I know. I do feel badly about that, but also I'm thankful that we have a voice to like it's, share our it's perspective. It's a silver and,
0: lining, you know? Yeah. Somebody yeah. said, uh, I forgot who yeah. said the other day, I was listening to a podcast, somebody said, Our Jews like our clouds without silver lining? <laughs> but in this case, <laughs> there, is, there, there is a silver lining. Yeah. Um, I think we are one... Anti-Semitic attack away from getting on Megyn Kelly. You think so?
1: I, I don't think, think so. so. Yeah, she'll have fifty thousand other Jews before she has us. But you well, can keep dreaming, yeah Absolutely to have Jews. So it's, even it's with
2: you are persecuted within or marginalized within Judaism.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> we are right. the Jews right. of okay. Jewish podcasters. Yeah, that's right. All right. That's right. Although, who? I mean, like, really, who's our competition? Maybe we should start diss tracks about like commentary <laughs> and. Like start talking shit about John Puthortz, and see. I that don't goes. think
2: anybody is, you know, between the two of you, you pretty you you go from the river to the sea in terms <laughs> of like true. really, you know, <laughs> showing the full breadth of uh, of modern uh, Jewry.
3: <laughs> Which I
2: I have to say, as a non-Jew, I was, uh, you know, I was raised uh, Roman Catholic, and uh, uh, you know that's in the rear view mirror for me until my deathbed, of course, when I'll reconvert. <laughs> But I feel uncomfortable ever even saying things like Jewry or that yeah. somebody is a Jew, et cetera. So yeah, I say that ahead of time. It's
0: like that, that AP guide that said that you ha- you're you supposed to say people with disabilities and people who are French. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you can't say a Jew. You have
1: to say people who are Jewish. I mean, we can yeah. say it. Before we yeah, get into our conversation, I just want to acknowledge that today, I don't know when we're releasing this, but today is 100 days since the war started. And there's been a big effort by the hostage families to remind everyone to please keep them in mind and to think about them. And there's been I just terrible amount of videos going around today of the mothers. I mean, I know, I, I don't mean that, maybe it's just because I'm a mother, so I feel it. But when you see the mothers of these hostages just begging and screaming and crying and asking the world to help them and help them even just to hear news about their kids. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. And
0: there's a one mother who's dying (sighs) of brain cancer and she spoke at the rally the other night. And, um, I went to the, um, I went to the rally here in New York a couple of days ago. Um, and it, it was very nice. It was moving, but it was very, you know, nobody blocked any roads. Nobody yeah. was wearing masks on their face. Uh, nobody was threatening anyone. What I, I wanna ask you, like Do you faithful. call
2: that a protest? <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's why the hostages haven't. Maybe if we only blocked the Brooklyn Bridge, they'd release yeah. the hostages.
1: You know, it's interesting because I feel this need to always say, like, as much as I want to talk about the hostages and everything, I also want to throat clear and say how, of course, we feel terrible for the innocent civilians in Gaza and all the people dying there and the kids. And, you know, and then I get upset at myself for even doing that because I say, are they doing that for us? Like, does the other side even care? Like, when they are on... New shows and when they're at the international court of, you know, are they worried about Jewish lives at all? And I, I just, I don't feel like they are. And it makes no, me, I don't like this no. about myself. I'm not proud that no. I feel this way, but it no. makes me not want to even acknowledge their side, which.
2: I think it's good that you resist that though. Yeah. Highly, right. Because it is, you know, and it's not throat clearing. I mean, this is, right, you know, I mean, this is a fundamental statement of of liberal values in right. the best way possible, which is, of course, like, you know, if every, mm-hmm. you have to feel empathy and sadness for innocent people who are getting fucked by history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Especially that, if you've you know, been in
0: war, like, you know, yeah. we know what it's like to have bombs flying all over. So it makes me, in a way, yeah. more sympathetic or empathetic, or I always get those confused to people who are going through that um you know in gaza or in syria or elsewhere but your question is do they whoever they is whoever's representing them feel the same no i mean it is literally part of their strategy is to increase civilian casualties because they know they can't fight us with with might but they can fight us with with public opinion and we can argue about whether or not that's working
1: Nick, I want to ask you a question, like, because you're impartial in a, in a way that because you're not a Jewish, like, I no. wonder, when I see people with the Palestinian flag, with the kafias, with the mm. masks, I get, uncom- I'm like, uncomfortable, like, I feel like my body tenses up, I feel threatened, I don't know, I just, it's yeah. so upsetting to me. But is that because I'm Jewish? Like, do other people feel that way? Is it? Or is that something that is unique to being a Jew
2: that's I uh, you know I can only answer from my own response which is that I don't have that kind of visceral response to it and I don't too do many th- almost anything in a political mm-hmm. uh, kind of context mm-hmm. broadly speaking um, and that might just be a deficiency in me but I mean for me one of the things that has been particularly sharp and I think important in clarifying since October 7th is you know or, 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 the question that gets raised is: Are the people in America, who are kind of going along with the, you know, for a period it was objectively pro-Hamas, pro-terrorism, uh, you know, and we saw this in the early demonstrations, you know, where people in, you know, Times Square and whatnot were mm-hmm. celebrating hang gliders killing, you know, innocent people in mm-hmm. Israel and. There is something so broken within that. Um, yeah. It's extremely difficult to understand. And I think about when I see a kefia And, you know, I remember uh, I graduated college in 1985 and uh, got a job in Manhattan. And at one point I needed, uh, it was cold out and there was a street vendor and I bought a kefia Because hey. I was like, oh, that looks pretty cool. Yeah, you know, it's like nice. are gonna and resurface it was, it was, an
0: old photo of you now. <clears throat> yeah,
2: it was yeah, me and uh, Rachel Ray, you yeah. know, uh, calling
0: for <laughs> yes, dimity and whatnot. Yeah. at Studio Fifty
2: Four, right at Dunkin' Donuts, yeah. right where we were planning for the uh, takeover. <laughs> and people can Google all that if they don't remember it. Uh, Rachel Ray and like Islamic yeah. conversion of the planet. It was this insane early uh, flashpoint in the war on terror. Um, but no, you know, I got a fear because I was like, okay, this was good scarf. It was like three or five dollars or something. Yeah. And, and I had it for years. I had no conception at right. all of what yeah. it meant or anything. And this is not to excuse me or to excuse anyone or to say nobody should wear kafias, but right. it's like the the level of um kind of willful ignorance I think on a lot of people who protest in favor of something or against something is monumental. And I think this does not make it better, but I mean, I think it helps to understand the problem more. I think most people on campuses who are really, you know, out there screaming and shouting for a lot of the uh, kind of pro-Palestinian and pro-Hamas attitudes have no idea what they're talking about.
0: Yeah, I think it's Um, also like very, somebody told me this and I can't stop thinking about it, how it's very um, hypothetical, To people, Right. So it's like if you tell me right now about a conflict in, you know, Sudan or something like I can't really picture it, but I'll be like, oh, these are the good guys. These are bad guys. Again, this is me being charitable to these people who are shouting for Intifada because for them it's like something far away and and it's the same level of reasoning that they apply to, you know, anything else in their life, which is just very, very um, surface level and... Superficial.
1: Yeah. And this goes to, I I mean, this is to your expertise, Nick, about like the free speech on campus that I really want to talk to you about. Because I was in a meeting on Friday with the university administration at the university that I work at. Yeah. And, you know, the conversation was about... You know, what is the university going to do in spring, during spring semester when they're going to have protests every week and it's going to be crazy, whatever. So the chancellor's office here in California had a lawyer speak to all the vice presidents and basically told them that the words from the river to the sea is a threat and they could be sued legally for having students say those things on campus. Is
3: that and true? the
1: university administration around the table with me was just like, we're being asked to rethink what free speech means on campus. Yeah. For 20 years, 30 years, we've been saying, you know, you can say whatever you want as long as you're not harming anyone. Right. So I took as a second. As long as you're not misgendering just, anyone. Right. You can say <laughs> well, you that's want. true. Yeah. But I yeah. took a second just to say, I'm like, I just want you to understand as a Jew, I'm just talking for myself as a Jew, what it means when I hear the word intifada, right? I just use that right. as an example because the, from the river to the sea is a little different. But when they marched around campus screaming, globalize the intifada or intifada now and forever, I said, I want you just to understand, I don't want this to be a legal issue. I want this to be a community norms issue that mm. people on this campus, the students understand mm. that when they're saying these words, they are actually hurting people's they're, like, hurting us, not physically, and it's not yeah. violence. I don't believe any of that. But it's hurtful, and we're here as a community on this campus. Why can't we have a conversation around speech in that way rather than making it a legal issue, which I think we all agree yeah. is not yeah. a great path, right? I mean, so I'm wondering what you think about that. No,
2: I, I mean, I find that un- unbelievable that uh, the UC system or the, or the Cal State it's system Cal State, would be yeah. talking about it. Uh, that kind of stuff, because, you know, any, any you know, you you never win by, um, you know, prohibiting speech. Uh, I mean, that isn't, yeah. that isn't the way, and when I say you win, I mean, it doesn't, it's not going to win hearts or minds, and it's also not going to stop the behavior. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're going, instead of talking about yeah. issues that really matter, which have to do with things like what's going on in the Middle East and how should America act, uh, you know, both mm-hmm. in terms of uh, you know, either intervening on one side or the other or not, or accepting refugees and, you know, mm-hmm. working diplomatically to to help, you know, bring a situation to a peaceful resolution. Now we're going to be having endless arguments about campus speech stuff, yeah, which right. is stupid. You know, Yael, you were joking about like the misgendering stuff. I mean, like, Part of the problem with college campuses over the past 20 years, certainly, and probably, you know, realistically, there was maybe a window between about 1965 to about 1985 or 90 when campuses really were free speech zones. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, before the free speech movement, which started in 1964 at Berkeley, was about students at Berkeley were not allowed to leaflet about anything political unless they were part of the college republicans or college democrats and they were like no we wanted to talk about the about the vietnam war mm. and we wanted to talk about civil rights and they were told no, and that led to you know riots and uh, or demonstrations actually, and then the the beginning of the free speech movement um, you know for the most part, colleges have never been particularly amenable to actual free speech, and clamping back down on it as we 've been doing at least since the nineties is not good um, so I think your point is really well taken and i 'm curious hi i I've, I've, you know I listen to your show. Regularly, although not—I uh, was going to say religiously—because
0: <laughs> you not can also listen to anymore. it secularly, yeah. like I do. Yeah,
2: no, but I, and I, uh, you know, the the um, episode that you had with Jonathan Rausch which I thought yeah. was really, you know, great and interesting, and covered some of those grounds. But at Cal State, what you know, are are people staging the debates? This used to be a creed of core in the '90s, which was teach the controversy. Um, because in, in the '60s, and I, you know, I, I, as an undergrad, I went to Rutgers, um, and I graduated in the mid '80s. But in the in the mid '60s, there was a famous uh, Vietnam teach-in there, where a, a professor of history or an assistant professor of history, Eugene Genovese, who became mm-hmm. one of the great American his, historians of the American South. Um, was essentially denied tenure because he spoke at a, a Vietnam teach-it wow. on campus. Hmm. Um, you know, Those but then in the 90s, yeah, well, I mean, it was fucked up and it became like this uh, semi-national issue because Richard Nixon uh, said that, you know, who was backing a Republican candidate for governor in a race, uh, the university was very mealy-mouthed in its response to this, but Nixon was saying, like, you should not have communists on the, the public payroll. And Genevieve's got fired, you know, by Rutgers and then went on to have one of the greatest careers, you know, in in American history. Um, So it's, you know, it's internally, it's a weird institutional question. But more broadly, this question of free speech uh, in the 90s when political correctness was starting and then there was a response to that. Some smarter academics were like, we should be teaching the controversies rather than trying to shut them down or or enforce one side of the issue. And I'm, so I'm curious, like at Cal State, <clears throat> is there any interest in having, you know, meaningful kind of you know discussions and arguments and debates about this stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish. I mean, because <laughs> you would think that students down on a college campus are interested in ideas and hearing yeah. different perspectives, but there's no interest in it whatsoever. The kids yeah. want. I mean, and I don't I want. I mean, say, they're actively I, against it, right? Well, I, I, I think if you bring an Israeli speaker now to have a debate, yeah, it's us. very difficult. It's very, mm-hmm. very difficult. But I think a lot of it, and I hate throwing all the kids under the bus. It's right. such a but not. Throw not him, a, it's throw not him, a nice bus thing is to say. Big but, I, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of young people who are scared to be confronted with ideas that they don't like, in, you know, feel in their gut, right? Like they just want confirmation mm-hmm. bias all the time, and so there's. There's this, and it's, by the way, it's not even the students' fault. This is a faculty issue. I am 100% on the train now that the problems on the university campuses have nothing to do with the students. It's all faculty. And it's the faculty advisors to the groups. We have reached out many times as the Jewish group on campus trying to meet with our Muslim counterparts, trying to meet with other minority groups. We get no response. They won't even respond to us. We've tried, you know, having teach-in, sit, whatever. They won't do any of that with us. They won't even, they have explicitly told the university that they won't be in a space with us. Like they're redoing the multicultural center right now At our at our university, and the other minority groups said they will not be in the same space as the Jewish club. I mean, and if you saw our Jewish kids—sorry to my students who listen, because many of them do—we're a bunch of little nerds. Okay, like we are we are such nerds, and they don't want to be near us. And so the conversation is just—it's—it's really hard. And then the you know I turn to the Jewish faculty and I say help us you know like let's do something but everybody's scared and nobody wants to you know rock the boat and I wish and and I kind of confront I not kind of I did confront the administration this week and I said who's sitting with these students and talking to them who is telling them that what they're doing is embarrassing like is anybody from the university sitting down and saying when you use paragliding images like let's talk about that nobody's doing that
2: it's you know I think you're right that um you it it isn't the students i mean that yeah. might be the place where the the vocalization happens and everything yeah. but you know universities uh faculty are constantly bitching and moaning about stuff and and it's also true that the you know the model the post-war model of tenure and of of the kind yes. of research university is is ending uh, you know, just as, you know, the Hollywood system has ended in a certain way in record companies and other institutions, you know, from, you know, from like mid-century, mid-20th century are finished because they don't serve, you know, they're not serving the purposes That's of people right. now. But but faculty years ago abdicated, and somebody like Camille Paglia is very um, uh, mm. expansive on this point, and I think convincing that uh, faculty, universities have always been about faculty. They abdicated a lot of administrative responsibilities because they wanted to get on with research and things like that. And so they were like, okay, just, you know, give us reduced teaching loads and release time for research. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is true even at mostly teaching colleges, the is in place, mm-hmm. and you guys deal with everything else. And as a result... Um, you know, it, it, the, the f- uh, any university um, and the university system, I think, runs on the quality and the engagement of faculty. And right. we need more faculty on more campuses pushing for free speech That's right. and insisting on it. And also, you know, people will always say, oh, well, there's been, you know, like a thousand administrators for every, you know, faculty line, et cetera. And it's like, well, you, you know, the faculty are the pride of a university. They are going to be the ones who change that, you know, and kind of insist on stuff. And students are, you know, they're not empty vessels when they show up at schools, but they are, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, they, I mean, I don't know about you guys. Like when I went to college, you know, I went because I knew I was ignorant. Like I really didn't know very much. And it didn't mean I just took whatever a faculty, you know, like I, I heard in class, but it's like, Come on, like faculty really need to step up, uh, you know, and this is just the most recent issue around which they've completely abdicated, you know, basic liberal values of open inquiry and, you know, free thinking, uh, free speech, and, you know, real academic freedom and heterodox thought.
0: Yeah. I also think people are very afraid of confrontation. So yep. they let, uh, you know, and I see it in, in private life and public everywhere. It's like you, you let the, the, the loudest voice dominate the conversation. You let the, you know, the hecklers veto oh, because nobody right. wants to stand up. Or you said like, Khaila, you said like Jewish students, Jewish faculty don't want to rock the boat. But meanwhile, you have smaller, you know, groups of people who are literally tipping the boat over. Yeah. but in order to stop that somebody needs to put their neck out and, and you see it well, in every facet of life like nobody wants to be that person who puts their neck out or sticks well, their neck out how do you say or that? sticks
1: their neck oh, out part, part of it is that this is a topic especially the israel-palestinian issue where people have very high opinions and very low knowledge. Mm-hmm. And really, this is something that you need high knowledge, right? In order to have like a real opinion. And it's it's hard to have a discussion with someone. I mean, I got into it with a woman, a Palestinian. And, you know, we were standing in line somewhere. We started getting into it, getting into it. And I realized she didn't know anything. Like she was, you know, screaming platitudes at me that she read on, whatever, not platitudes, but, you know, Instagram posts, one-liners <laughs> that she read. And, you know, if you ask a basic question, so it's hard to have those conversations. So mm. a lot of the students and a lot of the faculty come with to this issue with very high opinions, very low information. And so it's it's almost impossible to get into a discussion with someone like that. I don't know how to breach that, really. I don't know. It's frustrating.
0: <laughs> do you think it's, um, that's something that we ask a lot of our guests, do you think it's, it's worse today or we're just looking at it right now, you know, we're, we're at an age where we're like, oh, these kids today, they're so stupid. And I mean, <laughs> there's not a minute that goes by when I don't think that. Um, yeah, but you know, do you think there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, students have always been, uh, you know, more uh, like, were ha- like, you know, prone to activism that maybe they didn't know anything about, or students have always been kind of, you know, uh, flirting with violence. Um, do you think it's it's worse today? I don't know. It seems so from where I'm standing.
2: Yeah, I, I don't, I reject kind of golden ageism. So like, mm-hmm. I almost never want to look back and say, oh, that was the perfect time. And in many ways, that and was even better you were alive in many times. <coughs> yeah, that's right. I am, uh, you know, I said I was raised Catholic, but I'm like as old as Methuselah. Yeah. So I've, I've read the Old Testament.
1: You're 980 uh, well. years old. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. You know, but I still feel pretty good.
1: You look good. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're sharp.
2: You. Very, you know? very sharp. Yeah. Um, I. I you know what I would say is things things are different um and I highly recommend and this is somebody he's a, a Jewish American writer or uh named Leslie Fiedler, who is one of the reasons why I pursued my uh doctorate at SUNY Buffalo um who wrote widely he was born in like I think like 1918 or something and he wrote a lot about Jewish American identity mm. um in a, in endlessly fascinating ways and he was Uh, certainly one of the most influential literary and cultural critics within academia after World War II. Um, And, um, you know, just kind of a wild man and um, his take on Jewish identity in America and how it kind of refracted through things. He died around, I think in the late nineties. So it's like, it's an earlier thing, but he's just worth thinking about all the time. I think particularly in in today's moments. Um, But I don't think it is worse or better. I think it is different. And I think this is particularly true of discussions about Israeli or, well, Israel politics in America. And, like, my belief is that, you know, Americans consume foreign policy issues as a way of settling domestic scores. It really, Mm -hmm. you know, most people in America— have no idea where Europe is, much less where the Middle East is, et cetera, and like what we're actually arguing about has to do with, you know, trying to get more Democrats or Republicans elected. Do you identify as a progressive, as a liberal, as a conservative, or from, a libertarian. Yeah, you know, from Ferguson
0: like, to Palestine, one of the yeah, one of the dumber things I've heard. Recently. It is
2: absolutely, you know, it's all about advantage in domestic political struggles and power struggles, and yeah. So, you know, th- that's that's part of the background of it. And then what I think has changed is that, um, and this is really important, and I think it's really important for Jewish Americans or Jews in America and people who defend Israel. And, I, you know, one of the other things that came out of October 7th was this idea that, you know, there is a sizable number of people who are willing to say in public that Israel does not have a right to exist as a country, which right is I'm a I'm a critic of a lot of Israeli I, for lack of a better term foreign policy like I'm mm-hmm. I'm not uh, I I support Israel and obviously it has a right to exist and it is one of the most successful and amazing countries on the planet and that you know there's no question of that it doesn't mean everything Israel does at every time is perfect and should be supported uncritically right, but when you see people basically saying, no, Israel has no right to exist. Like, that mm-hmm. is a different level. And that, you know, I think people in America who are saying that don't really, most of them don't know what they're saying right? with that. And mm-hmm. that that's a huge problem. And that's a different matter than it was when I was in college in the 80s. There was, I, you know, I, I mean, once you start from the, uh, you know, maybe from the the creation of Israel, uh, through the current moment, there was a phase where being in favor of Israel was a defining issue of on the left. That was one yeah, of the right. ways that you showed you had impeccable bona fides yeah. as a progressive, you know, liberal Jew. And then, you know, when I was in college, it was starting to get murky. And now, it, in order to show you're a good leftist in America, you have to be anti-Israel. Yeah. Um, and in also oftentimes participate in weird anti-Semitic you know, kind of rhetoric and tropes and things like that. So that has changed. The other thing that has changed is that Israel, um, you know, Israel is so much more successful as a nation now. Mm -hmm. Um, It is hard, you know, and this is something, when I talk Mm to uh, older friends of mine, uh, whether Mm -hmm. they're Jewish or they just, you know, kind of came of age in the 50s and 60s, and uh, Yael, you know, you and me and Sarah Sisk and my fiance, we watched Exodus, a couple of uh mm-hmm. weeks ago or a couple of months because ago. Sarah
0: heard that I didn't watch it and <laughs> yeah.
2: And it, and it's like there Maybe. is a there's at least a generation or two in America like where their defining understanding of Israel, of the state of Israel comes mm-hmm. from Exodus, a movie that's from nineteen sixty, I think. The novel it's based on is from fifty-eight or fifty-nine. So it's like barely after World War II, mm-hmm. barely after Israel had been established. And it is this incredibly brilliant romantic you know, amazing, world-successful, uh, you know, tribute to Israel as, you know, the country that made the desert bloom. And the main villains in that really aren't even Arabs. It's right. really the British, the British government, yeah. to some degree, American indifference to Jews in the Middle East and things like that. You know, and Paul Newman is, you know, Ugh. is the ultimate Can't like Jew, right? Yeah. Of I mean, yes. uh, you know, and and they even they you know they corralled Salminio. You know, a, a gay Italian American, a closeted gay Italian American, is one of the heroes, so et cetera. Funny. And Eva Marie Saint is yeah. in love, falls in love with Israel, yeah. and doesn't go back to you know America at the end of the uh, thing. Um, but like. Israel isn't that country anymore. It's not a startup country. It's not scrappy. It is unbelievably successful. And I think there's a roundabout way of saying that I think part of what's going on here is that a lot of people who support Israel and Judaism and are anti-Semitic haven't updated their image of like, okay, what does it, what is Israel now? What, what are Jews now? Right. You know, since, and it's not to say, okay, well, the Holocaust is 70 years ago, so fuck it. We don't need to talk about that anymore or anything like that. But it's like Israel as it presents now within the Middle East and within a global culture is in a different position.
1: Well, this is the question that a lot of Jews struggle with is like, what do yeah. you do with Jewish power? Right. I mean, because we've mm-hmm. never had that question. A lot of anti-Semites you know, struggle with that question thousand, too. But we <laughs> yeah. it's true. But we I think this is what you're touching upon, Nick. And I thought about that when I rewatched Exodus and I read that book, you know, twenty times probably. Seriously. Right. Like it's just one of the best. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't read a lot of secular books, that was like, first of all, all Leon Urus books were allowed, even though it was weird because they had sex in them. and But my mother right. like was fine with that. Um, but um, Exodus was definitely one of the ones that I, I clung to. But I think a lot of Jews really struggle with this idea of what yeah. do we do with power? We're much more used to being the yeah. underdog with no power and you know the victims and now we turn around and now we have an army and not only an army we have a really good army and we have a lot of yeah, weapons no, you and, have an
2: army that yeah. like with you know that's like you know 10 and 0 or yeah, something. like you I would know. be you would get a buy in the NFL playoffs that's right, right. <laughs> but we act like we
1: don't but we yeah. in many ways we act like we don't have that so yeah because the
2: other you know I'm I, and uh, this is Not, you know, fully systematic by any stretch, but when you think about it, so like you have Exodus in the early 60s, just talking about like these big mega Hollywood productions that become universal world hits. Uh, Then the play Fiddler on the Roof, which, you know, appeared on Broadway in the mid 60s. The movie is from uh, 1971. That's, you know, that is also, that's not about Israel, right? I right. mean, the backdrop of it is the Holocaust. We weren't even calling it the Holocaust then, you right. know, in, in common parlance. But when you talk to a lot of people, they'll be like, you know, what it means to be a Jew or what Israel is about is Exodus and Fiddler on the Roof. yeah, yeah.
3: And, and it it's like, yeah, it is. And yeah. it is.
2: And these are like incredible, powerful, sad, tragic, yeah. you know, beautiful, stories. I mean, Fiddler on the Roof and like Sound of Music, which, you know, if you're Catholic, you see Sound of Music over and over again because it's like, you know, not only are the Germans so dumb that they're trying to get a naval captain from Austria, from a landlocked country, like he's the guy they want, but, you know, like nuns end up defeating the Nazis at the very end of the
3: movie uh,
2: by, you know, pulling their spark plugs or something. But, you know, Fiddler on the Roof is like that and like most people in America probably know, like, there's a good chance they know a couple of songs from Fiddler on the yeah. Roof and the basic thing. But that is, that's talking, and this is why I bring up people like Leslie Fiedler. He was always focusing on not, you know, how does cultural myth and identity yeah. linger on long past it describes the status of people. And I think a lot of Jews in America and their supporters, you know, they say, like, we are— incredible because we overcame so much. And But then if you get that's stuck in the Exodus or the um, Fiddler on the Roof phase um, or the Holocaust phase, you know, the, yeah. the mini series I'm talking about, which came out in 1978, and that's actually credited with, you know, in Germany of all places, but the, this miniseries Holocaust, which had, you know, Meryl Streep in it and mm. James Woods and Michael Moriarty it was huge. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, I was in high school, and this is a bizarre kind of image to think about. We were doing, of course, a production of Sound of Music. So uh, we would stop practices to watch Holocaust when it wow. came out. And so you would have this thing where like, a bunch of people wearing Nazi, Nazi costumes would stop practicing <laughs> Sound of Music, <laughs> oh rehearsing that, to watch That's this so funny. show, which so... Completely humanized and showed camps in a way on on you know a massive scale yeah. in Germany in West Germany that sparked you know political discussions and debates that changed the way Germany talked about things etc. Yeah. Like and again these are unbelievably important stories that need to be told and remembered and kind of circulated again and again. But then you know that doesn't say anything about Israel where I, I looked this up before this Israel. Has a higher per capita GDP than all of the member countries of the Axis. Wow. So, like Israel on a per capita basis wow. and GDP is doing better than Japan, Germany, and Italy.
1: Wow. Um,
2: and That's it's like, amazing.
3: okay. Yeah.
2: And yeah. I mean, that, by the way, is like a fucking great story to I tell.
1: I know. Well, right? I want to touch on one point. I wonder what Yael would think, being that she did not grow up in the same community that I did. But mm-hmm. when, I, when you mentioned a fiddler on the roof, I think for my community, fiddler on the roof is a tragedy. And they view that story as a tragedy. And they have been trying since Ellis Island to recreate what Tevya left in Anatevka, right? Like that's what the Hasidic community, the ultra-Orthodox community has been trying to rebuild here in the West and in Israel, right? In the the ultra-Orthodox communities in Israel. And they look at... Fiddler on the Roof, and they say, tragedy, tragedy. Assimilation is the worst thing that ever happened to us. We Mm. prefer, you know, being in a shtetl where everyone hates us over, you know, being in an Israel that has an army because our kids, you know, are going to be assimilated and they're not going to care about the religion and everybody's going to intermarry, and you know. And so it's, it's, we're we're really stuck. I mean, I don't, my community has not moved on, honestly. Like, Mm -hmm. we have not moved on from Fiddler on the Roof. And I think the next generation, my kids' age, you know, my kids are in their 20s now. My mm-hmm. my two oldest are both in their 20s. And I see among their friends, they don't relate to it anymore. They don't relate to a story of the shtetl like that anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't look at Fiddler on the Roof and say, oh, we long for that world, right? They long for the world of Exodus. They really do. They long to be yeah. Ari, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the soldier with the gun. I mean, that's what they want. But my community hasn't come to that yet i don't Our know community like, does has, uh, that make
0: sense has moved on to fauda
1: yeah
2: <laughs> i well this is i mean it's this true. is what israel is doing and and again this is you know it's important that fauda is an israeli show and i think mm-hmm. you know that yeah. israel itself has gone through Um, You know, it is dealing, it's talking about its history in a much, not surprisingly, in a much more nuanced and sophisticated and morally complicated way. I I was going to say morally ambivalent, but it's not. And what is great about FAUDA, and I, you know, i watched the entire show, I think, basically since October 7th. And it's like, what an achievement. And my fiancé was saying, or pointed out, was the first one to point out. Which I guess other people recognize too is that, like, one of the ways you know that show is interesting is that the terrorists are all unbelievably good looking oh, yeah. and attractive, <laughs> and the you know the Israelis are kind of like, eh, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> not really so good looking, you know. Um, but but it it that that is uh, I think one of its artistic achievements is that it is. Absolutely steadfast in the idea of that what Israel is doing is necessary and right and it needs to defend itself, and that shit gets super complicated really fast.
0: Yeah. You know, um, when that show. That? Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I, you know, and the, the other um, uh, movie, or, and this one has a Hollywood connection. So it's kind of interesting, although I don't think it did that well in the US, but there was a movie from 2010 called The Debt with Jessica Chastain, and mm-hmm. it's based on an Israeli movie, an earlier mm-hmm. one. But it's about uh, four uh, old Mossad agents or whatever preceded that who go into East Germany to capture a Mengele-type character. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is very early on in Israeli history, and the mission gets fucked up, and they get pulled out, and then they all, like in the, na- in the name of national myth building, they tell a false story, which papers over all of the nuance of what went wrong. And then one of them is dying or commits suicide and is going to write a book about telling the real story. And then the issue is like, okay, you're Israel and you need you need origin myths. Mm-hmm. And they're going to, by definition, they can't be that morally complicated. Um, but what do you do Fifty years later, yeah you know when you 've established yourself, et cetera, and the movie the debt with uh it's uh Helen Mirren and Jessica Chastain mm-hmm. and a couple of other people it's really, really good, um and the Israeli movie, which I also watched again, you know this this means Israel has started to move on in the way that it discusses itself internally um i don't yeah. know you know in America maybe not as much, um, you know, for a wide variety True. of reasons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then the flip side of that, I'll just throw out and shut up for a bit, is, um, you know, that uh, Hollywood, since its inception, literally has always cast Arabs as villains. <laughs> That's right. I mean, almost exclusively. And I was uh, telling you guys just before we started, I happened to be watching True Lies from 1994, you know where the villains are? These kind of vague, it, you know, and, and in an American context, because we don't really care about the other world. It's like yeah, they're kind of Iranian, yeah. but they're probably <laughs> Iraqi. You know, it's Persia and they're played also, by
0: played by Israeli actors. Yeah, or or
2: or Italians, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like it's it. You know, uh, it it's like there. I grew up certainly where like or it was starting in the eighties. Um, yeah. You know, every villain was an Arab. You know, and even. When you think about Lawrence of Arabia, which came out like a year or two after Exodus, similar,
3: yeah. you
2: know, there there was that moment where Hollywood could still do these massive great okay. costume dramas and things like that. But like right after Exodus, you get Lawrence of Arabia where the hero is a British guy, you know, yeah. and like all of the Arabs with the exception of uh, Omar Sharif, mm-hmm. who would later play a... German police soldier at a movie called Night of the Generals, which is great. But, like, they're all horrible human beings, right? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, the really. Ottomans and the Turks and the Arabs right. are pieces of shit. Um, so
1: Edward Said would like a word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I'll but, throw another movie out. L. did you grow up watching Operation Thunderbolt? Do you know that movie? No. So, if you go to any Orthodox day school... Anytime there was like a teacher absent or it was, you know, there was an emergency <laughs> meeting, they rolled in the video machine and we watched Operation Thunderbolt. I probably saw it 50 times. And it's the story of Entebbe. Right. It's, oh. an, it's a movie it's a re, it's a, a telling of the and Yeah, um yeah, the, radon mission, Entebbe. the raid on yeah, yeah. raid on Entebbe, exactly um and we grew i mean that was our that was our I don't story think right I could like make movies yeah. like that like there's going to be well, there's radon so
0: raid on Entebbe
2: is a biggie too and that's yeah. also in the mid 70s and you know that was a big tv movie in right. the us so I, I were you allowed to watch TV growing up Highlight? Not really. Or, I
1: mean, we snuck it,
2: but... Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah but I mean, it, it was like it Radon and Heavy was a big yeah. event, and it was also yeah. kind of like, you know, it, and I'm thinking back to the, you know, vague memories, uh, burnt-out, misty memories of my life, but like, <laughs> people like Moshe Diane
3: yeah.
2: were, mm-hmm. you know, un, I mean, they were like, science. they were like out of a James Bond. Yeah, thing. exactly. He, you know, he the had an eye patch, eye patch yeah. and it was like, you know, th- they kicked ass and I know. you know and again this all makes sense too because like up through that point you know i i mean the the munich massacre the black yeah. september
3: yeah
2: uh massacre which was happened in real time yeah was like what the fuck is going on and you can understand how you know you have a certain type of cultural production that responds mm-hmm. to relatively recent things like World War II, the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. all of the wars, uh, mostly of Arab aggression, and then things like, you know, the Munich massacre of of Israeli athletes in Germany, you know, uh, really a few decades after World War II. That's... That's right.
1: And and the story of Entebbe was really especially good because it had villains that were both German... And Palestinian. So it right. was just like the perfect, you know, <laughs> villain for the Russians. Jews. Like, yeah. Yeah, 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 it really was. Yeah. And I have a feeling, and maybe I'm, I'll, I, I actually know, I'm, I'm going to stand by this. I have a feeling post October 7th, we're going to see a revival of this kind of storytelling of Israel. I think there's a renewed kind of um, pride. I mean, we were always proud of the IDF, and there was always a sense yeah. of, like, a, you know, pride in the soldiers, but I think now it's going to be
0: well, really, like, heartfelt,
1: and the young kids are, like, I, I just listen to my own children talk about it, you know, and they're so, since, the, since October 7th, I mean, they're just, they revere these soldiers, I mean, they revere them, you know, my kids are, like, they want to join the IDF. Like that's where they feel. Um,
2: where does something like Munich, uh, you know, the, the Steven Spielberg movie, yeah. um, fit into this too? And again, you know, what's interesting is that Spielberg is very Jewish, but he's very American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is fascinating, and I had um, shared with you uh, an article from Mosaic, yeah, which is about the Americanization of. The, of like Jewish stories of the Holocaust, as well as, yeah. you know, it's really fascinating. And Munich, Munich is ultimately, which came out, I think, in 2005, is a warning about America's entry into the global war on terror yeah. or yeah. our yeah. persistence on that because it ends with the World Trade Center in the background. I know. You know, and it's like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, you got to be. You got to be kind of careful in how you deal with terrorism and things like that. Um, And that, I remember, before it came out, before anybody saw it, uh, a lot of people in uh, the Jewish American press were like, this is an insidious, horrible movie that is morally equivalent, et cetera. I don't think it's that. Um, But that, you know, also seems to be partly a response to a more powerful and, and kind of secure Israel. So yeah. that might also yeah, be true. something, you know, highlight that maybe, yeah. and maybe it's not your kids now, but 10 or 20 years down the road or their kids yeah, are going to be like, oh, like you them. know what? We overreacted. Uh, Israel overreacted in the wrong way to Gaza, yeah. blah, blah, blah. We do a lot of, uh, a lot of soul
0: searching mm-hmm. in yeah. Israel. And, and I wonder, especially after October 7th, you know, we kind of pride ourselves on being like very, trying to be very honest with ourselves and we want to t- talk about the bad stuff as well as the good stuff and we want to talk about the things that we did wrong. And on a personal level, I relate to that, but uh, sometimes I wonder if on a public level, it's, you know, we're giving people too much credit that they're not going to use it against us, which they already are. Yeah. I mean, there's already today um, uh, or last weekend, there was a, um, a big cover story in the Israeli paper about some of the um, like just terrible miscommunications and mistakes made by the IDF on October 7th. Mm-hmm. Um, and and of course, everybody knows there were some like major major fuck ups. Uh, I don't know that we we know to the extent, but it's already coming out there, and who didn't tell who and where. There's the going to be a thousand
1: failed. books written about October. There's going to be a thousand books. written oh, No, and I think there's yeah. going to
2: be uh, an entire political generation yes. that gets wiped out once things Absolutely. are settled. Yeah, I mean, down, the head of the Shin Bet is, already
0: said yeah. Yeah. that he's going to resign yeah. when this is all yeah. over. But but on one hand, I'm very happy that we're having this conversation in yeah. Israel and that we're not, you know, because I and I wonder about it, too, all the time in Gaza. I say, like, I really hope that they know what they're doing, because if we just mm-hmm. go in there and obliterate Gaza and don't get anything out of it, then we're screwed. But, um, but then I also, I, I'm very keenly aware about how it's used against us yeah. constantly, because people pick apart. I mean, I've heard... You have so many people, and I'm not talking about crazy people living in their bunkers in, in you know, Idaho. I'm talking about college students at Columbia who will, with a straight face, tell you Israel killed all uh, its own civilians on October 7th. Or Netanyahu knew about October 7th and didn't do anything right. because he wanted to control Gaza. So they'll take...
2: And he was funding Hamas. You know, right. he's, he's the re- you know it, it's he like it's reason. not Iran. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's not yeah.
2: Iran or other agents in the region. It's really Net- Netanyahu is responsible for. I everyone. mean, he's he right. is very powerful.
0: So, yeah. uh, you know, so I mean, people take these these bits and pieces of information that we are uh, very readily sharing with the world because we are we are a democracy. We are a country that that you know, freedom of press is. Is very strong in Israel, and also everybody knows everybody, so you can't really hide. You can't really keep a secret in Israel, um, and and it's being thrown back in our face. So I don't know. There's no like, yes, no answer to this. There's no like, well, let's not do these things. But it just it it does like pinch you know my 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 heart a little bit to see how it's constantly every every admittance of of yeah. um, of guilt or any mistake like Israel is expected to be completely flawless and fight a war and conduct its affairs, you know, without any blemishes because every blemish is like magnified to be the, the main story.
2: I I think the um, transparency, relative transparency of the society and there's something of this with America as well, Mm -hmm. very flawed country, but that commitment to transparency and openness is part of the success. Mm -hmm. So that it's very hard, and I I know what you mean, like where it's like, you know, the United States, excuse me, I can remember having lots of arguments with people who were British and French talking about colonialism and how, mm. you know, their versions of colonialism were, you know, were fine. Really, ultimately, they were positives to the people that they were subjugating. Mm. Whereas the United States is just <laughs> terrible, et cetera. And it's like all of these arguments are kind of stupid. But like one thing that makes America great and capable of progress is the fact that we have these debates, oftentimes, uh, you know, incredibly uh, fractious and ugly. But in the open. And I yeah. think it's to is you know, there's a reason like you really can't have an open society and you can't have an open economy or a successful economy, et cetera, if you're constantly trying to manage information all the time. Um, so it's hard, but I think that is actually the way forward is yeah. to
0: I just wonder know. if we need to make movies about these things. We do. <laughs>
2: yeah. I think it's well good and for write us. novels and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. It reminds
1: yes. me of Abu Ghraib. Remember when that happened? Yeah. And I was like at the time, you know, I thought we were justified in what we were doing. And I still, I mean, look, I yeah. still understand. I'm not one of these people like, oh, you know, whatever, we should never have done that. I, I understand where we were at that moment and why Bush did that, whatever. But when yeah. Abu Ghraib happened, I remember thinking like, our enemies are so much worse than us. What are we showing? Oh, mm-hmm. so the guys yeah. piled them up and peed on them or what I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was embarrassing and it was it made us look bad. Yeah. And at the time I was angry about it, but I look, looking back now I'm like, you know what? I'm proud of us because we were embarrassed by that. Yeah, we were exactly. embarrassed by behavior that was dehumanizing to our enemies rather than our enemies who don't care at all about life in that way, you know? So, I don't know, it's
0: there's a personal a and there's an external, right? Because yeah, personally, I'm tough. proud that, you know, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, that every Israeli, na- every Israeli knows the name Eliol Azalia, who's a soldier who a few years yeah. ago was convicted of killing a terrorist who was already neutralized. Right, right. So this guy tried to stab soldiers, they shot him, and then this, other, this soldier came in and shot him again to kill, uh, to kill him, which is not something that you should do. No, um, and because, you can't sanction. Yeah, right. yeah, and and there was a whole, you know, it, it was very much discussed in Israel, and he got he got convicted for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so on one hand, I'm you know I'm I'm proud of that. On the other hand, you know, do I want like a musical written about his life? No, uh, right. but things like that, I, I think sometimes the culture it, it tends to, and maybe this is more of my critique about Israeli culture, is that they tend to, you know, highlight the. The tragic stories versus the ones that like the the exoduses of the world.
1: Yeah. Well, Nick, one of the things in that article you sent from Mosaic mm-hmm. that I thought was really, I mean, it really struck a chord in me was about ex- the movie and the book Exodus and the differences mm-hmm. between yeah. them. I never really paid attention to that so much. And then yeah. reading through it and really understanding the differences, even the way already looked, right, between mm-hmm. the book and the movie or yeah. the ending. I mean, I, I can't believe yeah. I missed that, right? Like not even realizing that in the book, it ends at a Passover Seder, right, right. which is very particular to the Jewish people. And in the I movie, it's kind of universal.
0: Ended yeah. up with us moving to Uganda. Yeah. It's crazy.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think a lot of yeah. times, you know, this is, a, and this is something I love talking about, and I talk about it at ad nauseum, but, you know, a lot of things that um, see, America tries to be very universalist, right? Mm-hmm. Christianity is very universalist. Judaism right. is not. Judaism is yeah. a particularist <laughs> religion, right, yeah. for a particular people in a particular land with a language and a history. And I feel like this is part of the tension that American Jews really struggle with, yeah. trying to be universal liberals, right, but in a particular religion right. in a particular space. And that— article really highlighted it for me in the the change between the book and the movie. I don't know. Yeah, I
2: I agree. And uh, this is why Leslie Fiedler in particular writes a lot about that of like, uh, and not just about Jewish identity, but all ethnic and immigrant identities and also Black identity, African -American American identity, where it's like, you know, on a certain level, like you want to hold on to where you are from because that is who you are and that who's defined you, but then you know the promise of america the whole yeah. reason you ended up here one way or the other or you move from the you know the slave or jim crow south to the you know free north yeah. uh was to escape that past and you know uh there you know the gothic uh you know the concept of the gothic where the you know the past is always kind of somehow rising up like steam from the ground and you know infecting the future or you can't get quite rid of it. There's a very American version of that, um, which is heightened by the fact that you can escape the past, Um, but maybe you don't want to. And then how do you play that out? And this is where ILA, I mean, and, you know, this is from a completely outsider's point of view. I, I see something like the Orthodox community, things like the Amish community, I mean, people who say no to, you know, kind of the march of time and progress. Uh, You know, my mother was the daughter of Italian immigrants, grew up speaking Italian. Um, She did not want us to know Italian. You know, when we would say, she would be like, why, you know, why? That's like, it's a stupid language. Nobody (laughs) speaks it anymore, right? Even though she herself continues (laughs) speaking (laughs) a weirder and weirder pigeon with her family and whatnot. Um, And, you know, and like that, You get that. And there's a real sense of loss and pain to that, but it also allowed her and allowed us to move into a different world. That was better than the one that our our grandparents had come from. So, you know, in an American context, I can say because I'm not part of your community or the Amish or or Mormons are like this too, like where I love the fact that you guys are out there because you help us all understand better what the past means and why it is important to have remembrance of it, but also like... I don't know, like I don't want to be I don't want to be stuck in that. And I you know, Yael, I think for you it's you know, fascinating to think of like, you know, somebody who is born in Israel and you are what like a second or third generation Mm -hmm. born in Israel. And, you know, and then you come to the United States and like you are you're kind of on that frontier of how do you how do you move forward into the future while also respecting the past. Um,
0: And I've said before my my You know, my Israeli identity is a lot stronger than my Jewish identity, even though they're, they're intertwined. But, you know, it it is weird to me to think about things like anti-Semitism, which, you know, I always thought, like a lot of people, that was kind of like, you know, it doesn't really exist that much in the Western world. Uh, But to me, I'm very, I'm very sensitive about, you know, my Israeli identity. So if somebody... I, I'd, I'd much, you know, I'm more comfortable with somebody telling me something like old school anti Semitic, like, oh, you Jews, you're in a lot of, uh, you know, you do a lot of business dealings. Yeah. Uh, as opposed <laughs> to somebody telling me, you know, your country is a white colonialist settler nation.
2: Yeah. Um, Which seems to be where the energy is. I, and yeah. I don't know, you guys would know better, excuse me, than me, but it seems like the current spate although I think it's more complicated than this, it is really, you know, on campus even, it's anti-Israel rather than anti-Semitic, per se. Like, it's less about Jewishness and more about Israel, although these things are obviously inextricably linked to one another.
1: Yeah, I I just can't help. I mean, like, in a week like this, especially when we had the international court uh, whatever that whole oh, yeah. um, from the, the yeah. wonderful great country of South Africa bringing <laughs> Israel to qu- the international court, <laughs> right. I just couldn't help. And I, I recognize I'm a person of history, I love history. I taught history, Jewish history for 12 years in high school, and I'm this is what I, I love. Um, I just could not help feeling the entire weight of Jewish history on my shoulders this yeah, week. It and it feels thinking very,
0: that,
1: yeah, just thinking once again. Like, my ancestors, you know, whether it was 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago, begging the world to allow the Jews to exist, right, or to allow us to just defend ourselves. And I don't—it's really hard, I think, for American Jews to— understand why they're feeling this way because they don't have that sort of anchor in Jewish history. They don't have that enough knowledge of Jewish history to realize that what's happening right now feels so familiar if you understand mm. Jewish history. If you read, you know, you could pick up a, a, a Jewish history book open to any chapter anywhere in the book, and it's going to sound very similar to what we're going through today. And I don't, I, I hate saying that because it's also very different because we have a country with an army that defends it. I mean, all no. of that is true, yet as a Jew, it's, I'm telling you what it feels like, right? And it feels the same as it might have felt a thousand years ago or 500 you, years ago. Do you
2: think Israel should uh, co- you know, cooperate with the yeah, proceedings, and so I mean, it was an original signatory to the, yeah.
0: you know, yeah. convention
2: that created this court. You know, yeah, which we,
0: Israel really wants to be I accepted. With that. You know, that's a big, mm-hmm. big part of our identity as Israelis. I don't, I don't know if it's like a national identity, but on a personal level, yeah. they were just talking about that on the radio today in Israel, saying how, you know if somebody goes to a concert a like Adele concert in the U S in or somewhere. And she says, she acknowledges her fans from Israel. It's like, Oh my God. Yes. They, they see us, they accept us. Yeah. We always want to be, you know, a nation among, among the nations. We want to be accepted. So I think that's where it really tears at the heartstrings and, and the whole, you know, all the stuff with the UN is a lot of people say, why do you care what the UN says? I'm like, well, because we want, we want things, we don't want things to be this way. You know, we do want right, to be yeah. we do want to be accepted, and I, I think about this international uh, um, criminal court case. Um, I love. Well, I feel like it's like a video game where this is like the final boss level. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I I feel like is this like is this like the not to sound dramatic, but what what the hell is this like the going to be the final nail in the coffin for for institutions as far yeah. as Jewish people are concerned? Like we've lost. You know, we don't feel. Like the international organizations have our back, we don't feel like mm-hmm. the, the universities are. But it, you know, like what's it, it feels very like Martin Gurri esque, where mm-hmm. we're like, oh, actually, you know, we've looked behind the curtain and it's all just full of crap.
2: I, I mean, I think uh, you know the UN more broadly, including this proceeding, which is affiliated with the UN. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that this is the final death blow, but like the UN was created at a particular time in a particular set of circumstances. Um, and it has clearly not, you know, it's not doing well in the 21st century. And that's right. being very mm-hmm. gracious to it because um, it stopped being effective or meaningful perhaps as soon as it was created. Almost. I mean, if but, we
0: if it was doing well, it wouldn't have this war to begin with because Gaza would be under control. Yeah, and no, I mean, border, how many.
2: Yeah, how many, you know, how many people did the UN, you know, resettle? Like, how many refugees, et cetera? And, um, yeah, and I I think that that's a larger, uh, you know, issue here, which is that so many of these different entities that, again, came about in mid-century after World War II, when... You know, things had been flattened in a lot of ways. Like, a lot of the world was destroyed, and there was a reshaping of what was going to come next. It was very different from 50 or 100 years before. And we're at that time where all of these things, they're just, you know, they're kind of played out. Yeah. And um, I think this will probably accelerate, you know, the demise of of a large number of institutions.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating because we want them. You know, we want a good UN. We want a good international. No, I don't. Core. No, <laughs> I you don't, know what I mean. Yeah. Like we, we'd like well, to uh, live like in the, building the
2: platonic ideal. Yeah. Live like, in a know, world where, yeah.
0: where it works. Yeah,
2: you know the the one from uh, the Disney movie, The Rescuers. You know where the mice are under <laughs> yeah. the UN and they're <laughs> having debates and things, and there's like That's a mouse right. with a fez and you know a, a monocle and That's you know. Right. British right. bowlers, like you want one that actually works. There's yeah. a
0: great Simpsons episode where they do model UN and they start <laughs> fighting and the teacher yells at them and she says, uh, do you guys want to be like the real UN or do you just want to sit around and waste time?
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Wait, Nick, I want to ask you a question that is not Israel related. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We are coming to an election. We are in an election year, actually, since we're in January. We have our yeah. presidential election coming up in November. Hmm. And I feel like... Are we insane? Like, what is wrong with our country? <laughs> what are is, people going to blame yeah. the We're Jews? We're going to have Trump Biden again. No, yeah, this we, one,
2: this one we can't blame on the Jews. or
1: Yeah, well, we'll, <laughs> exactly. we'll find a way. We'll yeah, find yeah. a way. Yeah. What is happening? And what, like, do you have any hope? I mean, how are you feeling about this? And, uh, you what's know, your and
2: I'm, I'm struggling to remember if it was uh, uh, Happy Days or Laverne and Shirley, but. <laughs> oh. You know, in one of their later years, when everybody had stopped watching them, but they were still on TV, like they they bought a dude ranch in California, so they moved from like Milwaukee and did, or you know, the cartoon Josie and the Pussycats yeah. went into outer space because like okay, they, they had run out of material. We're in that stage. This is the you know yeah. we're in the Josie and the Pussycats in outer space phase. Of <laughs> That's American gonna be the name of this episode. It's yeah. gonna be very confusing. Um, where it's like you know this it it is. Uh, you know, and I, I don't say this cynically as, like, a libertarian because uh, – but we, you know, Democrats and Republicans and the way that they function, the way the major parties function, it's played out. Like, yeah. if in a country of 330 million people, um, oh. what you are kicking up to, you know, run the country is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, it's – the system isn't working, right? And we need, you know, we need to close it down, you know, and, and like yeah.
0: – until you know, we can figure out what's
2: going on, yeah. Or you know, and we got to rework the first and second acts. You know, this yeah. is like we're yeah. bombing here we need as, some as a country. Yeah.
1: yeah. What do you think's going to um, happen? I know,
2: <laughs> well, I and and a couple things. You know, Matt Welch and I, and I know Matt's been on your show. Uh, my colleague at mm. Reason, the you know, Fifth Column uh, co-host, we wrote a book a decade ago or a dozen mm. years ago called The Declaration of Independence, which took at its you know as its starting point the fact that fewer and fewer people identified even anonymously to pollsters who talked to them on the phone as democratic or republican yeah. and that has only proceeded a pace mm-hmm. since we wrote that and we were talking about stuff going back from 1970 on to you know 2011 2012 um, this is um you know the parties exist to serve uh, uh, two kind of opposed sets of special interests wrapped together by ideology that just doesn't exist anymore. Their current identities really were carved out in the 70s and 80s, maybe early 90s. And um, that needs to change. I I have a strong sense that there's a a large number of new consensuses that are forming Hmm. um, that will be different Um, I'm not happy with many of them, because part of it is generational. um, And it's just, you know, the question is, and this is legitimate, like, how do younger people, say people under 45, how do they get rid of the people who are in power, you know, who are primarily baby boomers who are not leaving? uh, You know, and I was born in 63, so I'm a second to last year boomer. But I get it. You know, it's like, you got to get rid of people. And I think it's, it's worth reading the Me Too movement and a bunch of other things in terms of generational change, like where, how do you get rid of older, powerful people who are in the, you know, running the industries, running the colleges, running yeah. the country that you, you know, you are now, you want to move into that phase and there's no opportunity. Um, I, you know, so I think over the next five years, we're going to see a major resettling of things.
3: That's good. Um, yeah, I, I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's,
2: right. it's, it the indi- individual things that come out of that may not be good, but like, if it's settled, then we can kind of get on with doing things. Right. How bad right does now, it need to
0: get before it gets Yeah, I,
2: well, obviously a little bit worse, right? Because if you're running Biden against Trump, I mean. um, that hopefully is the bottom, right? Yeah. And then in twenty twenty eight, there is going to none of the none of the people who are in power now are going to be around. Most of them will be dead from old age. Um, I, but I mean, this is why stuff like horseshoe theory. Why yeah. we're hearing more about this? Like, why are extreme right and extreme left coming closer to, and closer together? Why do you find? You know, people who are anti-vaccine, and I'm not talking about vaccine mandates. That's mm-hmm. a different thing. Mm-hmm. I I believe in vaccines. I don't believe in mandates, et cetera. But like more and more, you know, Tucker Carlson and kind yeah. of Black Lives Matter, right. you know, right. are starting to match up more and more, <laughs> yeah. and that's a sign that like whatever we're talking about now just isn't isn't configured to address how people think about stuff. And Hialeah, to your point, like how people feel about yeah. stuff. they younger people in America feel systematically like that there is no mobility, mm. that everybody is getting poorer, that we're more racist than we were when I was in college. Like, all of these things, when you f- look at the data seriously, like they're all insane. Like America is much better off than it was 50 mm-hmm. years ago. America is much less racist and sexist, homophobic. Yeah. Uh, you know. It, you know. We are such a better place, but it doesn't feel that way. Right. Why? Right. Why because not? I th- I think it's a, a combination of many things. Uh, Include.
0: Yeah, the phone. Uh, maybe
2: I, I don't think she's it. holding up a, a, a phone. My
0: phone. <laughs> yeah, a piece somewhat.
2: Of it. I, I think that it's, it's vastly more complicated than that and that it has a lot to do with things like the war on terror, which, mm. um, you know, we declared war. We didn't declare war on particular people or particular ideas. We declared war on terror, which was <laughs> an open-ended thing. And that we wasted a decade, you know, fighting a global war on terror and specifically fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to no clear end. Um, you know, because we didn't know what we were doing. Um, uh, but then the, the financial crisis was a major thing and it was a reset because we had been pumping up the economy using old 20th century ways of trying to give people more houses and cheaper money and things like that. Of course, there was going to be a major resettling. And then we didn't really deal with that. We spent a lot of money on shit. And now, you know, the, you know, the whole thing was, we will never have too big to fail, <laughs> yeah. and it's like the, the the finance industry is more concentrated and bigger than ever. Like it's right. bigger to fail than ever. And then you had COVID, where we have somehow managed to mask a very successful and quickly expedited response. Where you know yeah. we got vaccines in record amount of time. People were talking about it's going to be three to five years before we had vaccines. It was like a few months. And we're talking about that is like one of the most divisive things the country has gone through. We don't you know? give
0: ourselves enough credit for that one.
2: <laughs> well, we, yeah we, we, everything we talk about, it's like, you know, when you're depressed, everything in your life is bleak, right? And mm-hmm. that's right. You know, and it's like we have been at for most of the 21st century, we have been looking through things with depressant goggles on. Like that's we, right. we tell decline narratives again and again that like everything is getting worse, everything is getting worse. And, it doesn't matter what reality is. This is the world that we choose to live in.
1: Well, the reason I, I hold up my phone and say that is not because of technology. I think technology is overall a good, good thing and benefit in many ways. What I'm addressing is that the social fabric of our society is torn in a way that, and here's, here's where I'm going to sound like a religious crazy person, but <laughs> people are so lonely and, and so many people are actually alone right? Which human beings are just not supposed to be that way. And yeah. I think it affects how they view politics and how they view, you know, the the sort of how things are going because they're viewing it through a lens of, of bitterness, anger, and loneliness, and rejection, and all of these yeah. horrible things. And I see it only getting worse, not better. You know, and I was talking to, I mean, I had this epiphany on last week, I was meeting with someone and, you know, she was telling me a sad story about her marriage and how horrible it is. And, you know, her husband did A, B, and C. And when I started kind of unpacking her life and asking her about, you know, who else she has, you know, she has no one. She doesn't mm-hmm. have any siblings. Her She has two children who are older and grown and live far away. She doesn't have many friends. So I said to her, I'm like, you know, unfortunately, every eye roll of your husband is magnified because he's so central to you. My husband listens to this podcast, but honestly, <laughs> I don't care when my husband rolls his eyes at me because <laughs> I'm too busy with all the million people yeah. around me, my sisters, my my brothers, my parents, my cousins, my, I mean, so people I think are really suffering and when you're suffering and you're hurting from loneliness, it's hard to see anything in a good way. And I don't know how we address that in any like meaningful way. I'm kind of lost on that. uh,
2: You know, I, I take what you say and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Our social configurations have changed dramatically just in my lifetime. Um, Mm -hmm. From you know, and, and certainly you know. So let's say you know, fifty years ago we were more communal. Ooh, uh, we, yeah. but that also meant, and and fifty years before that we were even more communal. And right. that you know, the world a hundred years ago is the one that my grandparents left in Israel, or in Israel, yeah. in Ireland, <laughs> in Ireland, right, and Italy. You. Right. right? Ireland and Italy, right? You know?
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and one of the reasons they left was because it was so communal. Yeah. They're, yeah. You know, they had no role to play. They were like, okay, hey, here's your job is to be a peasant or a serf. <laughs> right. And maybe, you know, we'll call you up and you'll get killed in World War One. But that's good because, you know, the rulers of the country, you know, have yeah. decided that's your role. So they come to America and then they get to have a little bit more control over their lives. And like I think about this a lot with my parents, not to, you know, bring everything down to the level of the of individual experience, but they, they moved away from their parents, which, you mm-hmm. know, their parents had moved thousands of miles from their parents. Yeah. My parents moved about 75 miles from their parents because they didn't like, be, they were trapped in the roles that their family yeah. constellations yeah, had community created.
0: community can be very suffocating. I,
2: Yeah. And then I look at myself and, you know, I traveled about 8,000 miles around the country in search of work and education. Mm -hmm. And I live back in the city I was born in, but like it's a radically different configuration. I'm close with my brother and sister, not so close with my cousins who Mm -hmm. live two miles from me. Um, And so there's a balancing act, is what I'm getting at is that, yeah, we are less communal in old ways, but. I think the answer to what you're talking about, Hila, like you've chosen one answer, which is to be in a in a world where community is everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and you know, and it means like, yeah. and it's an incredible commitment to say like, okay, you know what, sun's down on Friday, yeah, I'll see you Comes in a day place. or so. Like yeah. it's yeah, mm-hmm. like and it's a choice, and I think it's great for you, and I think it's great to be out there so that other people can experience it. But that's not we're not going to have a rebirth of like intense communal feelings and what we need to do and this is the type of work that societies need to do and it's dis, uh you know it's it's decentralized it is um, imperfect, it's, it's ambling, it's not linear. Is like we need to figure out in a world where people are more mobile than ever, uh, where we have communications that are different, that transcend time and space, we have to come up with new ways of figuring out how do individuals find meaning in their yeah. life and maintain that so that they don't go you know, slowly insane or quickly insane or don't become angry or isolated in ways that are bad. Right but, right. but we also have to recognize, like, I know, like, I'm a real beneficiary of, like, a much looser social fabric. Right. My mother and father had a lot of commitments and obligations foisted on them. And they, you know, they performed them as well as they could. Um, and I have less of that. It doesn't mean, I, you know, I'm divorced, but I have two adult kids that right. I have been very attentive to and will continue to be. Right. But, you know, like, I, I don't, have a tight connection with my cousins or my extended family or my neighborhood.
1: Yeah, it does come at a big price. I mean, I'll talk about it all day and night, how much of a price I pay for this. But I wonder if it's possible to take out the threads of my, the things that I appreciate about my life, not through a religious lens, but can it be translated into a secular you know, a secular community or people who don't care yep. about religion? And mm-hmm. can we encourage people to have families and to mar- to actually get married and have children and, you know, build the kinds of communities without, you don't, it doesn't need to be religious in any sense. I mean, oh, I know yeah, it yeah, helps. Yeah. It helps to have the religion just because it binds you together, but. Religion
2: I, is the one thing, even more than familial lineage, I would yeah. say that has transcended time and place. Right. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, I mentioned I was raised Roman Catholic because, you know, the Catholic Church, uh, for all of its many, many uh, ills and crimes, really, is, you know, is the most successful transnational, transhistorical entity, yeah. arguably. You know, it, it went from nothing to its, you know, the single largest religious organization. It's like Howard Johnson's right.
3: <laughs> for religion,
2: and it's still around, right? It's like it's growing,
3: actually. Yeah, so. Yeah.
2: I agree, religion is key, but I'm curious from this context, Yael, how do you feel? Yeah, because you, you are you are doing a you know, a very um, you know, kind of interesting kind of ambit through the world. And I know you go back and forth between Israel and the US, mm-hmm. but I mean, how do you how do you create community and meaning as an individual where you get to choose, you know, in a way that maybe wasn't the case a hundred years ago or 500 years ago. You get to choose what traditions and what communities you participate in. I
0: mean, I come from a very close family and, you know, a very, very tight community. My parents always had lots of friends and we would all go on holidays together. And some of my best memories growing up was my, with my parents' friends, you know, and, and their kids who are my age, um, And, you know, I I, I moved to the U.S. not to necessarily get away from that, um, but, you know, there is something about, like, dipping. I I, I find, like, I'm in a lot of different communities, and maybe this is just more my personality, and I take something from each of them. But to me, even knowing that, and it's going to sound maybe silly, but... Even knowing that I have a WhatsApp community with friends, mm-hmm. and some of them are people who I haven't met, and some of them friends who I, you know, like i and very close to, but to know that you have, you know, just groups of people that you yep. can either like meet up with and cry on the phone to, or just send send a funny meme to. Right. Uh, but I think it's very, like, I don't know where I'd be without that. Um, I think it would be very personally, very, very hard for me. I have friends who are, you know, mostly like my American friends who just don't have that and don't don't need that and can spend an entire weekend by themselves, it doesn't seem healthy to me. Um, I don't think I don't think they think it's healthy either.
2: You so you don't believe in neurodivergence? No. That's what I hear.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. it's all it's all made up No, and I'm and I'm very much like an introvert. Like I have yeah. a friend staying with me right now. God bless her. I love her. We get along great. But I I am very much somebody who needs like my own space right. uh, but you know you need if, if you don't if you're not bouncing things off people if you're not talking to people about like silly day-to-day things you're you're just constantly in your head which is not a good place to be for a lot of us
3: <laughs> yeah
2: I, I yeah. agree with that I mean and I, to get back to Hialeah's like original question this is where I you know if we actually explicitly foreground these kinds of conversations instead of I mean one of the things in this is the boomer in me saying, you know what? Uh like younger people seem to be very passive. Um and, they're so and I don't want to say entitled. Well, but <laughs> no, they're, we can, you know there's a sense that like the young world people all the time. I yeah, I know, but I I don't because right. I actually I like <laughs> young people. Um and they don't like um,
0: anybody under 40.
2: <laughs> yeah, but but there's a sense of like, well, who who is going to fix this
0: for me? Or it's mm, like, yeah. you
2: know, and it's—I don't think that's particularly worse than in the past, but you know, nobody is coming to to rescue you. You know, right. and and it's like true, like the UN isn't coming to rescue right. you. Uh, Bretton Woods, you know, the international monetary system after World War II is—it's over. It's been over for decades. Nobody's coming to rescue you. You have to build your own community. You have to build yeah. your own meaning, and that is a really, you know, kind of liberating responsibility. It's also horrible. And it's really tedious and it's hard. You know, it's just really, really difficult. But we need to be doing that and to be foregrounding that because the communities that matter to us are going to be different than those of our parents and grandparents, et cetera, and will be different than our kids. Our kids are, you know, my kids already live in a radically different world than I grew up in. And, um, you know, so it's, it's an act of you know, we're all Sisyphus, we're all rolling the fucking rock up the hill and we're going to be doing it again and again. And then the question is like, you know, how many iterations of that before, you know, Sisyphus becomes totally insane because of isolation or is incapable of talking with other people because they've spent too much time alone? Mm -hmm. I don't know.
1: Right. It's interesting because my oldest is 21 and in our community, you know, it's time to start thinking about you know, marriage. I mean, for a boy, it's a little young, but his friends have started getting engaged and getting married. And it's a process that, you know, the parents are obviously involved with and, you know, the parents are choosing who the, you know, I will choose who he dates, not that he won't date them, but I will set him up with, you know, the right girl who I think, you know, he should go out with. Um, and it's just so fascinating to me to watch this happen. And that's why I'm thinking about this a lot. At yeah. the same time that I work with my students on campus who are totally not Orthodox, who are also 21 in a completely different world. <laughs> I, I mean, it's you like two, to Does it all world. start
2: like, okay, he's going to date Gal Gadot. And yeah. then it's like... <laughs>
1: He wishes.
2: So can, I, can I tell you, I mean, this is an interesting chain of progression, which I hadn't thought about in these terms until you just mentioned that. So my Italian grandparents who were born in like the 1890s or mm-hmm. something, they had an arranged marriage. They came from a small town in Southern Italy. Uh, the, the marriage was ultimately um, consummated or, you know, done in Connecticut of all places. So my mother's parents have an arranged marriage. They're from the same town. Right. Um my mother was engaged to somebody, broke it off, married my father, who was Irish Catholic. And his her family was more accepting of his Irishness than the Irish were of my mother's Italianness. His mother and sisters wouldn't even acknowledge my mother when they were engaged <laughs> for a while. Um, but they became friendly. And, like, yeah. the only reason they could get hitched was because they were both Catholic. Right. Otherwise, it would have been un- unbelievable. I ended up getting married to a woman from the Midwest who was divorced. And my parents were like, well, we don't like that.
3: (laughs) You know, like, what the fuck? Like, she's damaged
2: goods and she was Protestant, (laughs) even though my parents hadn't been to church in probably 15 years. They were like, oh, that's not good. But I was like, well, fuck you. We got divorced. (laughs) You know, and now I'm married now to a married Jewish to woman, or engaged to a, a Jewish woman. I'm uh, domestic partner in <laughs> New York with her, who's much younger than me, comes from a very different background, and we spend we just spent uh, Christmas with my ex-wife and her husband, oh my and God. my ex-wife's <laughs> kids, or my and my kids. Right. That's, that's so,
1: hilarious. like, we've created
2: like a 21st century Brady
1: Bunch. That's so cute.
2: where this ends, a but like, you know, so you, yeah. Uh, So, but you see, like, there's something going on here, and it is both a loosening of traditional, conventional community ties, but then also something else coming up. Yeah. That's kind of wonderful, to be quite honest.
1: Um, Ours is the opposite. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah <laughs> literally like I mean I'm not exaggerating that, like you know my parent, my well, my grandparents had a bit of a different story only because they were Holocaust survivors, so they came they were both married before the war, and their spouses were killed, My grandfather had wow. children before he lost everyone, so they met they came from very different Hasidic backgrounds. And so like in Poland before the war, they would never have married each other. But after the war, it was not, I mean, it was like whatever. Right. Was, it was pickings were was, a little bit slimmer. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. So they got married. You know, my yeah. parents came, you know, both from Hasidic backgrounds. So they mm. were set up. That was an arranged marriage. My husband and I both come from, Chabad families, Hasidic families. He's from London. I was, you know, I'm from California. Very different places. We were both living in New York. We were set up by our parents, and my son, who's living in New York, will be set up with someone from a Chabad family who, you know, like the same thing. I mean, this is going to be like generations. I sense a like
2: Filipino male bride. (laughs) Yeah, for this story to get to the next level, like there's. I
1: mean, we won't even. I'm. I'm going to be honest. Like. We won't even consider girls that aren't from Chabad families. Forget like right. non-Jews. We're not even looking at other Hasidic girls. Like yeah. what if you could tell me from the tunnel
0: digging sect?
1: Well, yeah. so that's a that's an interesting point. Like we would never. My, when I was dating, when I was ready to get married, that was right when the the split in Chabad <laughs> was happening with the Messianics and the non messianics no. My father would never ever have considered a boy from a family that were messianics. Like, that was off the table. Didn't matter if they were rich and famous and rabbis. Would you rather like, that you date a non-Jew or no. a tunnel digger? Oh, that's okay. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. No, <laughs> I would say not a non-Jew. That would be a lot. But like, I, you know, when I look at for my son, when I start looking for my son, I mean, I'm going to want, you know, a Chabad family, very, yeah. you know, hopefully a good family. and I, But that it's, yeah, we're not, Mo- but they changing. don't have to be
2: good as <laughs> long as they're habat.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, kind I want like both.
2: That's, I yeah. want both. You want both, but you'll settle for one. What if the right? girl
0: is amazing, want- but the parents are a pain in the ass? It's a very good yeah. question. Yeah. I or, mean, or the it depends other way you mean.
1: It depends what you mean. I mean, no, obviously well, and- the first is the girl. We want a good girl, a nice, <laughs> special, mm-hmm. fun, smart, all the things, you know. And then the family why is
2: your why is your son listening to you and
1: your, and, <laughs> because and your husband the this is the social structure I mean he doesn't have any other way of finding someone we don't socialize and, so. And, it's, uh,
2: Hasidics don't have like a rum springer or anything? No. Like, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. nobody would come back. Nice. Nobody would come back,
1: right? He, yeah, you'd have one cheeseburger. You're never going back to this. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> He's coming back. He wouldn't
0: see someone. He wouldn't be like, hey, I have a crush on this girl. Can you check out? I mean, if,
1: yeah, you could say. I I did that, you know, yeah. at one point. I mean, I, I Do you allow
2: him to ride in the front seat? <laughs> <laughs> or does he is he still in like the third row of the minivan
0: Only on uh only on the watch dish on uh yeah. There's a high the tr- Listen, we're to, a very to get high trust. The, uh,
2: to get into the to get into the high occupancy vehicle That's lane That's right. Yeah. <laughs> for free.
1: This is a very high trust community and our kids yeah. generally I uh, trust everyone. it sounds
2: more like <laughs> I don't know. It's so repressive.
1: It's just, well, look, my parents, look, I did it. It happened to me. I'm not even talking for anyone else. My parents looked for a a shidduch, a a mate for me, and they, you know, called me and said, okay. Wait, they looked
2: for a shithook?
1: Shidduch. Shidduch, that's the word. (laughs) And, you know, they called me and said, okay, we found this guy. Sounds great. We spoke to his friends. We spoke to his relatives. Sounds like a great guy. I, and we dated. I mean, I went out with him. It was my choice if I wanted to marry him or not, but we, you know, it was all, you know, done with approval and sort of from both sides. And my kids are just following along because I don't know, it works. I I mean, I'm married 23 years and we have a nice, Family, a nice marriage, and I, you know, so I think my kids. Look that's it a little
2: defensive, don't you? Think? I do. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's I'd like, like to, that. I'd nobody, like, nobody was suggesting you didn't.
1: I'd do like you to know, interview. I'd like to interview Baruch. Uh, it doesn't work for everyone. everyone. I get it. It does not work for everyone. Right.
2: Nobody's seen him though in a number of years. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. right? <laughs> kind of like the per, yeah, kind of like the do the you? wife from um, Scientology. Oh my God, yeah. no, no, it's, it's not appeared. like that. But Chaya is very confused by I think right by like not confused, but. I think the whole concept of like modern dating
1: and single women Well, I think if I saw that it worked so well and everyone was so happy, I would be Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know what? We should try that. But all I see is misery and (laughs) sadness and divorce and dysfunction. So I think to myself, okay, well...
2: I mean, you know, it's interesting because marriage rates are down. Like fewer people get married. But Mm -hmm. since the mid-80s, divorce rates have been flat or declining. Right, that's
1: true. That's true. Which is
2: kind of interesting. Um, You know, can I ask, if it's working, why, and I realize that Judaism is not a, um, you know, it's not an evangelical uh, religion, like you're you're not seeking to pull more people in. But, you know, why isn't, why aren't traditionalist conceptions of religion, or not of religion, but of community and of things like marriage and all that, why do you think they're not Growing, if if it works, and I'm not saying it doesn't yeah. work. I'm just curious. Yeah.
1: I I think it's a high cost. I mean, there's a yeah. it, there's a high cost to it, and people. It, it's it's hard to. First of all, I'll say one thing that it's hard to admit. I think it's really hard to join a community n- later in life. You yeah. know, like if you right. weren't born yeah, yeah. into it, these things are easy for me because I've done it my whole life, and I know right. people who become Orthodox later on. It's not as easy. You know, it's yeah. it's it's a much it's like becoming More, vegan one day. Yeah, it's it's much yes. harder, and you're not. Ex- I mean, I've, I have, be,
2: I've become vegan. I <laughs> ate vegan for like five years, and it was pretty easy. <laughs> actually.
1: yeah, <laughs> no, so I, I know. I know it's right, me. It's right. hard. It's hard. Yeah. You know, there's. Yeah. Th- I'm going to be honest. Like, you know, there are families that won't marry. People who weren't Orthodox their whole lives, right? right? Or they won't, or even if their parents became yeah. Orthodox and they were born into that family Orthodox, they would still not, you know, go out with them. So it's that's one part of it is just acceptance into a community is hard. And also the cost of being part of it is really, really high. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm Chabad, the, the Hasidic sect that I'm part of is into outreach. I mean, that's our whole thing. We're the only Hasidic yeah. sect that goes out and tries to meet Jews and bring them closer to Judaism, et cetera. And that that is growing, actually. Chabad is yeah. doing incredible. Like, the numbers and the and people who are coming to Chabad because they're looking for something more authentic or, you know, right. more communal rather than what they're getting at, you know, and yeah. not, not to disparage reform and conservative Judaism, right. but I think what they're looking for when they come to Chabad is exactly the thing that I'm talking about, yeah. which is the family community part of it Israel- that they don't like get anywhere it. else. Because yeah.
0: Israelis don't, conservative is too scary. Um and, and reform is like a, something I've never seen in my life. I'm like, yeah. what, what the hell is this? I don't know. So, you know, Chabad is like, I think if it brings like the whole, Chabad always makes you feel comfortable. Like it makes, doesn't make you
1: feel like Not you everyone, don't know what you're some doing. Some people are uncomfortable. Yeah, but Yeah, in general. I mean, look, you want to become, you want my life. You're going to cover your hair all the time. You're eating right. certain food. You're keeping Shabbat. You're having kids. Like it's, there's a yeah, high like cost a vegan, to this lifestyle. You know.
2: it is fascinating and y'all you know i suspect with you know various things that you've been doing in terms of you know like uh uh, you know marathons or triathlons and things like that i can barely sit
0: now on my chair because my back hurts but yeah
2: yeah but like you know you there was a time when you weren't doing that and then you when you're training it's Mm -hmm. like it's you know does a ton of stuff and there may come a time where you stop doing it and you're kind of like wow that was like Yeah, like all of my life was oriented around that. I think about that when I uh, I did a lot of distance running in the mid '80s, Mm -hmm. and you know, and my when I go back and I have a couple of like running journals, and I was like, holy shit! Like everything in my life revolved around this. Yeah, Yeah. and then that stopped at some point when I was Catholic. You know, when I was a kid, I went to Catholic grammar school and high school, and like I think about this a lot when I think about my kids' life. Like so much of my community was built around all of that, and then it wasn't. But it's, yeah. so I I totally understand what you mean, Hialeah. Yeah. And I also, it is, you know, religious communities have always been, but other forms of intentional communities are very, you know, they can be totalist in a way that yeah. is good um, or bad. Uh, you know, right. and I, I mean, right. like, you know, professionally for 30 years now, I've been part of the broad kind of libertarian community, yeah. and I've worked at the same mm-hmm. place And that has, you know, that's been a structuring device. It's very, I was
0: going to say something a little awkward, but we're an hour and a half in, so maybe people stop (laughs) listening, hopefully. But
1: I feel like the strongest
0: pull right now in my, uh, in my like world is my community of, I don't know what to call them, like the broader reason slash fifth column Mm. universe. Um, which is started a group that, you know, people have started becoming friends with in 2020. And even though it's like not, it's kind of like ISIS. It's not like there's no headquarters. (laughs) It's more loosely organized. Right. Um, You opt into it. But, you know, I think about like, you know, the the man I'm dating I met there, Mm -hmm. the podcast that I'm doing, which is a really big part of my life started from there. And then, you know, my social events, Nick, I, I see you a couple times a month now, which right. is yeah. lovely because I can just show up to an event and I know that there will be people there that I know. Right. And by yep. the way, I think that's something that people in New York do not have. That's a huge privilege right. to just be able to be like, Oh, who's throwing this party? Who's doing this talk? Yeah. And it also affects what I want in life. Right. Because now I'm like, Oh, I want to read this book or I want my, you know, I want to have this person on my podcast. Like you kind of fall into these things without necessarily like, deciding that that's what you want to do. And not and, that I'm complaining. I love it.
2: but Yeah, no. And, you know, also to go back to Hialeah's, uh earlier point, you know, I I don't want to say, okay, everything is always getting better. You know, I'm yeah. not like Dr. Pangloss or something. But <laughs> it's interesting to think about the breakdown book. of social life in New York when you go back to the early 60s and people like Philip Roth commented on this, uh, but then there was the Kitty Genovese murder, mm-hmm. which it turns out was yeah. very misreported by the New York Times. But it that case where a woman was supposedly stabbed to death and raped, I think, repeatedly yeah. in the courtyard of, a, of an apartment building, I believe, in Queens. Yeah, we learned that um, in
0: school in Israel.
2: Yeah. and like, look and, at and, these but people, crazy Americans. But that was, you know, 1960 when it's like, are you fucking kidding? Like, right. you could you could walk, you know, uh, the streets of everywhere in New York without getting beaten up because it was so great. <laughs> At the time, people are like, this shows how society had completely broken down. And, like, that's probably always the case depending on where you're focusing. Like, things yeah. are either true. totally breaking down or they're totally getting better. And I, I have a lot of friends who are in kind of alternative subcultures. And it's always fascinating, like, you know— People who are like, oh, you know, the gays are taking over, like, because they were in a they were in a world that was beginning to wane. But yeah. then when you you talk to people who were younger in the seventies or eighties, and they were like, you know, for the first time in my life, I could be who I was, right? Right? And like, depending on what you know, whose
1: vantage point so you're talking
2: about, yeah. Um, and which is not to say there aren't broad indicators of real social issues that either you know exist at the macro level or, or sub. Uh, you know, sub-communities of people.
3: Yeah.
2: And we need to be at, uh, be attentive to that. But oh, I saw the uh, movie American Fiction last night, mm, which is very funny. funny and is getting a lot of press. Jeffrey Wright plays a, a Black author who, you know, fakes a, a ghetto story in order to write a <laughs> bestseller, et cetera. It's, it's really, really it's smart and interesting. But one of the things that's the the backdrop of that is there's a broad, you know, black, middle, and upper class that just never gets discussed because Mm -hmm. to do so would, you know, like, that's not where the kind of main narratives are about, like, what's going on for African Americans or other minorities. And it's like... Yeah, you know, there's, so I true. mean, so many different stories to be telling at any one moment. And we, you know, the, the past, the present, the future are always kind of struggles over which story defines, say, like America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I go, oh, so and true. I realize, you know, I I mentioned Leslie Fiedler a bunch of times. I may have on our first thing. Was he He, your sponsor? to me, he, <laughs> you know, he he's like, I, I worked with him a little bit, not closely, but he's an intellectual mentor because one of the things that he foregrounded in post-war America was, you know, this sense of, like, there was a vast leveling um, in America. Like, we went from being a relatively poor country to a relatively wealthy country. And also, after World War II, immigration, uh, certainly from Europe, stopped because of a variety of reasons. Mostly mm-hmm. that, you know, Europe was being rebuilt and most of the people who had wanted to la- leave had already left. But um, the foreign-born Percentage of the population decreased until 1970 when it was at its lowest recorded level, which was like under 5%. You know, and it's around 14% now. But people started taking, you know, uh, people who were parts of immigrant cultures and including blacks in this that were denigrated or seen as lesser started to be, started to flex. They were Mm -hmm. like, you know what, like I'm making money. And I have a cultural heritage that I'm proud of and that Mm. I'm going to start talking about as a source of identity. And then, you know, that leads to a weird point where suddenly, well, you can't be American if you're fundamentally something else, et cetera, And like, weird stuff ensues. And we're in a a version of that now, I think, Mm. where we're struggling for a broadly American narrative that kind of covers everybody but isn't too... You know, it it has to be open enough so that it can change, but it can't be so loose that it doesn't mean anything. And this is part of the background of what's going on on campuses. I think it's happening nationally, et cetera.
1: It's interesting you're saying that. And one of the threads I'm pulling out of that is, you know, when I, I wanted to write something on December 31st, you know, as like a end of year, you know, kind of reflection. And I, in I, my head... I,
2: I just want to point out, you've already given up. You're basically going with the Christian calendar. I mean, it's true. <laughs> I'm done. Like you're I'm fully assimilating. Taking off know, my next wig, stop Saturnalia, <laughs> yeah.
1: No, but, I, you know, when I sat down, I, I in my head, I was going to write this, like, doom and gloom piece because I was like, the world is shit and everything in Israel is a disaster and I'm in so much pain and I'm so sad and, you know, everything since October. 7th. But then I started to kind of look at my screen. I was starting to type and something hit me like, I actually had a really good year personally, right? Like mm-hmm. so many great things yeah. happened to me this year, even from October 7th, right? And I kind of started thinking about that and I'm like, wow, my kids are all doing really well and I started grad school and I love the podcast and, you know, work is has been great even though this it's been hard since October 7th. Like all of these things started coming through my head and what you're saying is so true, Nick, about like what story we're telling, right? At the same time of all those good things happening, I also had a very difficult year, right? I was like... I really am struggling with what's going on in Israel. It's really hurtful and hurting me. And like, and I just, but that's not the whole story, right? And even in Israel, I just was in Israel a few weeks ago. Even in Israel, you could tell one story, which is the war. And that is an overwhelming story right now. But there's also everyday life going on and good things happening and babies being born and marriages. And so it's, I, I never really, you know, thought about it like that. You know, there's so many, there's multiple layers to every way we're looking at the world I mean it's just not simple, you know anyway
3: <laughs> yeah That's
1: no hard. i
2: i mean i yeah and and again you don't want to i've known people who are going through horrible things, or you know there's always that person during a war where you you know you're country and your people are about to be wiped off the face of the earth and the people are like, oh, you know what? Like, I had a really good tomato yeah. today or something. Like, you don't
0: want you don't want to Just become delusional. This potato peel is delicious, yeah. Yeah,
2: you don't want to become delusional about yeah. it, yeah. but it's also, you yeah. know, things are more complicated. I thought yeah.
0: about it this year, too. It's like, and I was thinking yesterday about what I want for this year, and, and I realized how I can't differentiate my personal, you know, right. Uh, my personal life and, and the national life because if things get bad in Israel, I will feel bad. And if things yes. get better, maybe I'll I'll feel a little better. But it's hard to differentiate that. But also but then also I realize how unique that is in the world. Like not everybody has that. Like, you know, if, if somebody is like, I don't know, I don't wanna like uh talk shit about any other people, but like just regular regular old white guys, let's say. Yeah. Or, you know, They're people, the worst. The yeah, worst. The worst. Um, no, no, but people don't necessarily have that sense of, you know, like a like an inexplicable connection to something that you have no control over necessarily.
1: Not to say it's a good thing, yeah. but it's definitely very powerful. Okay. Any closing thoughts, Nick? Anything you want to say before we uh, let you go? Why are we your favorite podcast? <laughs> uh,
2: what I like about Ask a Jew is that it is a window onto a world that I kind of understand but don't, mm. and uh, you know Same. I. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: You know, so it, it, I mean, it keeps me thinking. And, uh, you. you know, several of your recent episodes have just been uh, really fantastic. And Aww. some of the times it's people I know. So it's like, you know, yeah. people like Jonathan Rauch. And that's interesting to hear him talking about things. You know, he and I have known each other for, I don't know, 25 years. I'm like in love with 25 him. Years. So you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good luck with that. I know. Seriously. <laughs> uh, he's a gay married man.
1: Who is so also like, I don't know how old that. he
2: is, but... uh He's uh, in his early sixties, so okay, like, I mean, he's, look, he's still can... got he's still got a couple of good years. I think, of
0: what's his husband like? Maybe we can be a throuple.
2: His, uh, no, I don't think you can.
0: Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, no, wow.
2: I, I don't think he can compete, to be quite honest. But, <laughs>
3: um,
2: but uh, uh, no, so I, uh, that's what one of the things that I like about Ask a Jew is thank that it, uh, it it opens up, you know, conversations that I wouldn't be listening to otherwise, wow,
3: well, um, and that's
2: one that. of the things that I look for.
3: And well, that, you know, as a,
2: as a closing thought though, how about this to, um, think about because it's, you know, that you know, the, the response, the initial response among certain people in America to the Hamas attacks is like just so ugly and it's beyond, you know, and it isn't a question of like critiquing foreign policy or something like that. It was like very off-putting and strange, Um, I think it is worth thinking about, like, Israel, uh, like the United States, because it is one of the kind of victors of history in a way, in a profound way. Mm -hmm. It does—we do have, as nations, we have higher responsibilities than to do what our might allows us Mm -hmm. to do. Um, And part of thinking about what does it mean to be Israeli or Jewish in America, say, in the 21st century— There's also that question, what does it mean to be an Arab in 21st century America or a Palestinian? And, you know, this is where my real deep concern for the Palestinians, uh, you know, and obviously not the terrorists and all of that. But, like, they are, you know, they have been remaindered by history in a Mm. profound and disturbing way. And, like, uh, you know, none of the Arab countries around them, Mm. you know, are really invested in their, you know, successful you know, move into, into the future. Um, And, you know, what, what if it's worth thinking about what does it mean to be Jewish American in the 21st century or Israeli American or be Israeli? How does, how is that connected to coming up with a vision of either Arab identity or more specifically Palestinian identity that is not based solely on grievance? Uh, which can be a motivating factor and can be an empowering one, but it's also ultimately mm-hmm. a limiting one. Mm-hmm. And what is fascinating in a lot of ways, and and just thinking about some of the movies that we've talked about in the history of Jews in America, is that Jews went from, you know, really being motivated, you know, before World War II by um, being outsiders and being marginalized and being sometimes legally, usually by custom, discriminated against, they use that as a motivating force to become successful. Yeah. And then your story has to change. You know, when you are when you are running things, you know, in certain areas or you're doing very successfully, your story has to change. And what what are the ways in which Arab identity can be, you know, changed and revised and put into a a positive mode rather than one that is always talking
0: about grievance. That's That's why God God doesn't let us get too comfortable. the juice, yeah. I think. But no, but it's wow. it's true, and I think one of the things I've realized more and more, and I think more and more, is we, we you know, we can uh, have the better economy, we can have the better army, uh, but we can't...
2: The better hummus you were about to say. The better hummus, say. better yeah. falafel,
0: yeah. obviously. Um, <laughs> no, but we, we can't bring a, another nation to that realization, that to you know lay down it's that that is better to live than to die for uh you know whatever your interpretation of history is like we can't we always say in israel a lot of people say like that we're waiting for the palestinian martin luther king or the palestinian anwar sadat but we can't make anybody r- get, realize that point to get to that point and
1: yeah. that has to come from it has you to come know come from, from within them. yeah well those are good good questions okay yeah. Well, Nick, we'll have you back next week so we can continue. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We didn't even talk. I'll just leave the, the uh, camera on. <laughs> yeah, leave yeah. it on. We didn't talk I about know. the tunnels. Yeah. We didn't talk about the. We didn't talk about cap- I wanted to talk about capitalism. We have so much more to talk about. Okay. Yeah. We'll For, do are
2: it again. you pro
0: or anti? Just. To- <laughs> I'm
2: very pro okay. now and I mean, I'll throw this out in the closing minutes. Yes. That, um, you know, a big one of the reasons if you're looking to explore why is there so much anti-Semitism in the academic left, think about the way that Jews and capitalism have been conflated for centuries. Um, I think, you know, the anti-capitalism has kind of disappeared in under the weight of identity politics, but you know, that, that's a fertile ground for understanding visceral anti-Semitism at least rhetorical anti-Semitism. It has something to do with anti-capitalism.
1: Just so obsessed. I think with there's us. a book here. I think there's a book in this. Honestly, there are many, and,
2: and, the, and the one that I would recommend is uh, Jerry Z. Mueller's uh, "Capitalism and the Jews." Yeah,
0: I love how um, half of these books can sound like white supremacy <laughs> manifestos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: that's true, and the cover of that also kind of looks like that. But Wait, he's who's the he's. Jerry Z. Muller. Okay. And he's at, um, also he's at Catholic university. Muller. He, yeah, he is, uh, he's a fantastic, uh, historian of, of Judaism and of, uh, you know, all sorts of things. He uh, has so there, he,
0: there are some discrepancies on the number of people he thinks were killed in the Holocaust, but yeah. we don't need to get into that right now.
2: He, uh, I mean, why he's at Catholic University, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, that's so you know, funny. I mean, I, I suspect that's a post-Vatican II appointment, but uh, <laughs> that's
1: interesting. I don't know. Well, anyway, thank you, thank you, thank Nick, you for thank your you. time. This is seriously. always lots of fun. We have to have about, Sarah my on. My pleasure. I Sarah we're
0: going to have Sarah on because we're going to uh, talk about um, I, wanted, I have so many yeah. questions. We're going to talk oh, about drug her, treatment.
2: The yeah. Psychedelics yes. and Judaism is, I mean, it's it, not to become too uh, kind of uh, um, um, religiously driven, but uh, <laughs> psychedelics are, uh, you know, the, the two guys at the forefront of the modern kind of psychedelic movement uh, from the 60s or late 50s and 60s were Timothy Leary, who was yeah. very Catholic before he became a LSD high priest, and Richard Alpert, who became mm. Ram Dass. Mm. Uh, and um, Alpert, it, I mean, there's the the connection between Judaism and psychedelics is fascinating. We're uh, everywhere.
1: No, yeah. I want to talk to Sarah about it. I have a, yeah. I have a lot of questions and yeah. interesting we we'll definitely thoughts. have her also,
2: yeah. yeah. Anyway, I highly recommend that. That'll be funny If you funny could put in a word for us. That yeah. Would be, well, <laughs> send us our contact info. Okay.
0: <laughs> all right. Thank, thank you, you, Nick.
2: Thank you.